everybody. Stoked to have you guys back here for another episode of the Pink Bike Podcast. I'm Mike Levy, your sometimes host for these things. And episode number 67 is going to be a special one for me and hopefully you guys as well. Today, we've got Richard Cunningham with us. Now, you probably know him as RC for the first of a multi-episode chat with him about pretty much everything. Now, there's a lot to cover, but if you're newish to the sport, you might only know RC's name from seeing it here on Pink Bike. But that is really just the tip of his contributions to mountain biking. Now, there's a ton to talk about. I'm not sure how far we're going to get today in episode one, but we're going to try to cover how RC built some of California's first purpose-built mountain bike trails in the early 80s, Yeah, to welding his own Mantis mountain bike frames, building his own plane in his living room, teaching himself how to fly it without taking lessons. What the hell? And we're going to get to mountain bike action, I think, today. So, RC... I kind of want to hear about how you taught yourself how to fly a plane, you wild man, but we're going to go back. I want to start before that. RC, where did, where did little Richard grow up and what was that like? Well, I'm actually a native Californian and at my age, that's a rare deal because everybody emigrated about the same time as I did. So I grew up in uh, Orange County, which is the bastion of the Republican Party in California. But at that time, it was just orange groves as far as you could see. I mean, literally, my, my, when my father moved, he bought a house for $12,000. And my mom was used to living in the city and ride every day. Yeah, 4.5% interest. <laughs> but oh. he didn't get paid much back then. He was struggling to pay the bills. <laughs> no. That's the so key anyway, to real estate, RC. We just need a time so, machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> I think the house is worth like eight hundred thousand dollars, and it's just this tiny little thing. So anyway, yeah, I yeah. I, I basically was a, a the oldest of eight kids, and my my parents let us out like dogs in the morning. You know, five boys came before three girls, and so no, most of the time it was just five boys, and we were just wild men. And my mother would open the door, and we would run into the orange groves, and make bows and arrows and blow things up and and it was just really fun and when we got hungry about and it started to get dark we'd come home just like dogs and we'd run into the house and where where are we going to eat you know so it was a wild i i grew up as a as a bit of a wild boy but i was tiny i was i was really undersized for for even the age that i was and so i was always like you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> everybody was bigger than me. I was, I think I was 4'11 when I went into high school, but I was always the smallest boy. And when I went to parochial school, whenever we went, whenever we went to church or somebody important came, they would line up all the students from the smallest to the largest. And I was always in the front. So that's how yeah. my first flying experience came. We'll get to that later. But anyway, <laughs> my, my, my parents are really strict and, I had to, even you know even though they we were wild men they they were super strict about a lot of stuff so I was I felt I was oppressed like most kids you know and when they gave me my first bicycle it took a long time to ride it because I was so little I didn't fit any regular sized bicycles and my dad wanted his son to grow up like a man damn it so he bought me a big bike so the only way to learn how to ride it was to ride it as far as you could and then crash because I couldn't touch the ground, right? So I was just crashing and crashing and crashing. And 
and I, I thought I would never learn. But when I did, it was just like the world changed that moment when I could go around in circles in the street and go around the block. It was like the world opened up, ARC. That's it. It was, it was the most, it was the turning point in my life. I could leave home and I could go long distances away from my, from my house. It was my own world. And that's what I did. I yeah, rode, yeah. I rode my bicycle everywhere. The RC that I know is a legendary tinkerer. A, he's always building something. He's always making something. He's got a welder out, bolting something to something. Where, where did this come from? Is was was six year old RC doing this? Where did this come from? Well, <laughs> that's the wild man part. My, we ruined all of our toys, so my parents stopped buying them for us. But <laughs> they gave us old tools, hammers, and wrenches, and stuff. So, uh, everybody, when when uh, I, I was in one of the first um, modern, what you call modern housing tracks, it's when they're trying to figure out how to put all these people that were having babies in little neighborhoods for cheap. And we were like stuck. We were the last neighborhood and the last neighborhood of the last neighborhood with dirt roads at the end of our street. But everybody wanted new stuff. They came from back east, New Jersey, where, where they had their parents give away crap. And everybody wanted new stuff. So they threw away a lot of really good things that they moved in with in order to replace it with brand new, fresh you know, items that they saw. On their, well, they didn't have black and white TV back then, but that's another story. Anyway... So I would, on trash day, which was Monday morning, my brother and I would go walk the neighborhoods and we'd see what was in the trash cans. And we'd pull out anything that had wheels. Any, they'd, they'd throw away lawnmowers with working engines or we'd fix the engines. And so it, we were pretty young at the time, but we would cob together like with just boards and, and bolts. We'd cob together little go-karts. Wait, wait. How, how old were you? How old were you when you were fixing lawnmower engines, RC? Probably seven or eight years old, nine years old, because I took everything apart. One time my dad told me that there were jewels in his watch. And I thought, wow, I was expecting like these <laughs> faceted gems in there, right? So I stole his watch while he was somewhere, yeah. a worker on, he's, he worked on secret stuff. He was in the aerospace thing. And so he was gone for periods at a time. But when he was gone, I stole his watch. And it took me a long time to figure out how to take it apart. But I took it apart slowly but surely and I got the back off and then it had little tiny screws and I remember where he kept his jeweler screws because he worked on really fine instruments he was doing uh, wind tunnel testing and stuff and I got his jewelry screws and I unscrewed the tiny little screws and <laughs> it just came apart all the springs all the gears just boom. and I'm like well I didn't cuss back then but if I did I would say something really bad but and I thought, I can fix this. I can put it all together. And I worked for weeks in secret. My dad was going, where's my watch, mom? He goes, mother, where's my watch? I don't know. I haven't seen it, Pat. Uh, you must have put it somewhere. And I'm like, just sweating it out. And I, I can do this. I, anyway, I can never fix it. And so it wasn't in, a year later or something like that where I finally had the courage to say, dad, I, I ruined your watch and I can't put it back together. And he goes, did you take that apart? And I said, yeah, I did. And he goes, they're really hard to put back together, Richard. I can understand why you had a problem with that. And that's the last he said. I thought he was really, I would. I thought I was going to get beat, but I didn't. <laughs> anyway, Yeah. so I just took everything apart. And you learn by destroying things 
how they go together and how strong they need to be or how weak they actually are. And I think what I, what I look, look back now is most of the time I was destroying things. And I think that's how I learned how to build, mm -hmm. you know, destroying old sheds in the orange groves that were abandoned. You know, we just get baseball bats and rocks and we throw it through the boards and, and anyway, <laughs> destruction leads to creativity. Yeah. yeah. And I think for you to have the freedom for your parents to give you that freedom to be grabbing this stuff and taking it apart and trying to put it back together again, obviously that was a, a pretty important part of your life, you know, when you were young. It had, a, it had a big effect later on, didn't it? Oh, yeah. But to add to that, I was a dreamer. I was, I was the last person in the world you'd think would, that have, would have any mechanical aptitude. My father used to, he was a product engineer that was just super sharp. In fact, one of the most brilliant men I've ever known now that I look back to it. But he would try to explain how, how strength versus weight. And then he'd stop and he'd go, Richard, I'd appreciate it if you stayed awake during our conversations. <laughs> he was so disappointed. <laughs> I had no mind for the actual technicality of building things. Well, <laughs> you obviously you obviously absorbed something. <laughs> I RC, did. You touched you touched on your dad a little bit there. Can we let's go back to your dad? Uh, I don't know how much how much you could say. But you've mentioned in the past that your dad had something to do with the landing gear on the lunar lander. Is that is that true? Oh, uh, that is true. Uh, my my dad was a, a maverick within the aerospace industry. He could see math in three D, but he was also the kind of engineer that a product engineer that could actually build things. He had experience actually making things, so he was much more practical than the NASA at, at the time who were just scrambling for solutions and just farming everything out to contractors and hoping to get a good idea. And when it came to the lunar lander, it was also the launch pad for the recovery vehicle to return back to orbit, to the moon. So the lander had to land within about eight to 10 degrees of flat on any surface because this wasn't high tech. I mean, the computers that they were using to do all this stuff were probably less powerful than a than a, the word than the least expensive phone you could buy right now so anyway the lunar lander had to land on the moon at surfaces up to 30 degrees and still be only about five or so degrees from level so they could take off and not spin out of orbit and die and it was a one-shot deal so there was a whole bunch of proposals out there and my father actually told me about this one because he had to fight really hard. They told him he was an idiot over and over and over again. And then they just ran out of ideas. So basically, it's just a, a telescopic fork on each leg. But instead of using a hydraulic mechanism or something, yeah. So he just used a, a piece of, I believe it was either aluminum or titanium, that was distorted slightly. So when it hit, it would collapse. And if you distorted it in, at different places in different ways, it would, it would squish a little bit or a lot. So he could control it. But he was really against a one-time deal that you couldn't, you couldn't repeat. You know, that, <laughs> once you built them, they either worked or they didn't. But it was so light. And at that time, the weight was, was a huge. But anyway, so that was, he designed that. And 
And uh, when I went to Boeing uh, Air and Space Museum in, in uh, Seattle, they have a lunar lander there, and it's ridiculously small. You can't imagine two people inside of that thing, you know? And there it was, the first time I ever saw it. RC, I've been there and seen that. Without knowing it, I've been there and seen the landing gear on the lunar lander that your father designed. Yeah. That's crazy. It is. <laughs> did he did he tell you about this stuff like at the time or was it secret or did he tell you later? That one he told me um when I was in my early teens, which was well after the mm-hmm. the, the the moon landing. But he didn't tell me most of the stuff. The it's a big story, but the one time he broke secrecy, and this is crazy because I imagine your father just being a mystery man for your entire childhood. Like he said, I'm going to Rocket Dine or I'm I, I'm going to Pasadena today, and that's all because the secrecy JPL thing, or yeah, something. The JPL yeah. and uh, and the secrecy things were so they had a sign they couldn't tell their wives anything. So my mom didn't know either. He would just go to work and he would come back. And then uh, so so he told he showed me three things in, in my entire life that were secret. One was the uh, air intakes of the F-15 and F-16. They had a, a problem to solve that he was he wanted to explain to me. And that was pretty hard to listen to because it was it's the kind of a machine where there's nothing going on except for air pressure. <laughs> They had to slow down the air to subsonic speeds to get into the engine so it wouldn't flame out. But they had to be able to go Mach 2, uh-huh. right, and accelerate through all that. So they figured out a way to do that statically with oh. very little stuff. But that's another story. So you need – what they had to do is try to get the best of both worlds. It needed to work when it was going Mach 2, but also needed to work without flaming out and when it was going slow. Yes, and at different angles of attack. And he showed me this. It was a massive breakthrough. He was so excited about it. He just had to tell someone. But that wasn't the funny one. So the, the most crazy story that he told me to break the secret was actually the day that it happened. And that's how he started. I was a young teenager, maybe a freshman in high school. Maybe I was a, a, still in junior high school doing my homework on the, on the kitchen table. And it was really late. I, you know, I'm a procrastinator when it comes to doing that stuff, and I like working at night. So it's probably about 11 o'clock at night. And my father walked in, and he was gray as a ghost. He looked like he had fallen off a ladder and, and uh, just walked into the house to, uh, you know. And I said, "Is everything okay?" And he said, "Well, yes, Richard, but I'm not supposed to talk about anything that I do. I have signed secrecy agreements, and that's pretty much why." I don't talk to you about my work. It's because I can't. I can't even tell your mother. But I have to tell you this story because I have to tell someone. And he said, "When you know our, our company that we have in Anaheim, Western Scale? And I said, yes. He said, I said, you build industrial scales in, in uh, Anaheim. And he says, no, we bought the scale company because we needed a place to do testing. NASA needs to know exactly how much thrust their Saturn V rocket makes because their payloads and the rockets are getting too heavy. And they are getting to the point if, if they don't know exactly how much thrust the rockets make within 1%, that we can't 
go into orbit or we can't reach the, the goals that we that we need. So they need a way to measure the, the thrust of the Saturn V rocket. Now, if you don't know what a Saturn V rocket is, Google it. They're about 27 feet tall, and the thrust bell at the bottom of the thrust bell is probably 15 feet in diameter. And they can empty the fuel tanks that's, of those giant rockets. That's rocket. just the engine part, too. That's like it's, one engine. They use three. It's the second largest rocket ever made. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was only Elon's newest one is just slightly bigger, just for yeah. reference. <laughs> There's one at Exhibition Exposition Park in Los Angeles outside, if you want to see one and touch it. But they're massive. Yeah. And they were supercharging to get more and more thrust out of them. So he said, so... Our proposal was really simple. He said they're they're trying to figure out how to do it, and many proposals have been have been uh, submitted, but none of them are practical. And the ones that are practical may take two or three years to prove out. So we invented a simple one, and we needed a place to test it. So my idea it was his idea, I believe, but it's always our idea with Patrick. I call my father by his first name. He says our idea was that they were they were firing these rockets off par parallel to the ground on these steel gantries. So if we measured the stress on the steel beams, because they're just triangulated, they're simple, uh, they're simple structures, we measured the stress on the beams and back calculated the stress on the steel, we could get within 1% easily. So we gave them that proposal and they laughed us off. But they ran out of they ran out of ideas and called us back and gave us the proposal. So to test our theory, we bought Western Scale because it was hidden in the orange groves, and it was a good ruse. And we also bought the Merlin engines from P fifty one Mustangs and uh, Supermarine Spitfires. After the war, they were available for like three to five hundred dollars in crates. They came with the propellers. And they were all tested for thrust. So they knew at what RPM, at what propeller's pitch, the thrust was. And you know those fans they put in orange groves to keep the frost from ruining the crop? They put these 2,000 horsepower Merlin 12-cylinder aircraft engines from World War II with four-blade props that were like yeah, yeah. 13 feet in diameter. And they would run them up to 75% power in the middle of the night so that nobody would see what they were doing with strain gauges all over the gantries. You can imagine those things just bending like trees in the wind, you know? And he said it worked. And he said, so we got the contract. And I was at Rocketdyne yesterday uh, for the first test. And he said, we put all the strain gauges on the gantry. We got the computers hooked up. And then, of course, we would... We all went into these bunkers, and the bunkers have three-inch thick quartz glass so we could watch it. And then we knew that there might be a problem, there may be an explosion, and so we had high-speed radar on all the hills around us. Now, the Rocketdyne facility was in the hills behind Corona, California, where Troy Lee Designs is, a bunch of a bunch of uh, moto, moto people, uh, works performance, I mean... They're just hills with with uh, <laughs> suburban neighborhoods in them and, and horse trails, and this is only about yeah. maybe twenty five miles from my house. It was considered East Jesus at the time, so <laughs> so this is where they're testing Saturn V. <laughs> and he says, 
So he comes back and he goes, and Richard, we knew that we might have an explosion. So we, so the, we have four, th four inch thick, four by eight plates of steel bolted to the top and backs uh, of the facility of this gantry. So that if we do have an explosion, it will contain it. So we got, we went into the bunkers and we got ready for the test. And as the test started, the engine got up to about full throttle and it blew up. And he said, there was nothing, hardly anything left of the gantry. We lost the steel plates on the radar. As in, they couldn't track them. Like they went out of they went out of range radar zone. <laughs> that's how that's how incredible this explosion was. He said, "Do you have any idea how heavy a four inch, four foot by eight foot steel plate weighs?" And I said, "No, Dad. I think it's about what about it? Almost a pound per cubic inch or something like that." And he goes, "He said it's about two and a half tons or something like that." He said they were just gone. We don't even know where they were or where they landed. So you can imagine these, the Chino is, Chino is all this dairy cattle area behind there. These dairy cattle like sliced in half with a hole in the ground. <laughs> that's just two, four inches wide. That's not funny. <laughs> you know, and the, the farmer's going, yeah. the thing is not one word in the newspapers. This explosion must've been heard yeah. for like 50 miles in every direction. But back then it was like, yeah, everything was was hush hush, right? They just told the news this did not yeah, happen. Yeah. Anyway, he said they got out. There's no OSHA or or chemical. These people could walk out immediately. So he said the the engineers were walking around. The entire place was destroyed, and they were just speaking to themselves with no idea that all their work gone. And he said the entire facility was destroyed. And and he said. It's inconceivable. I have never experienced anything like that in my life. So fast forward. Now I'm 50 years old, 45 years old, maybe. And I'm working a mountain bike action, right? And this is, you know, many, many years. My father um, was probably 30. He's probably 34 years old. I'm older than him. And I'm driving... To, to go test a bike. And I see this man hitchhiking and he's like, you know, 50, 55 years old, 60 years old. He's dressed, but he's like pretty well. He doesn't look like a hitchhiker. And I blow by him. I'm like, I got to get this bike tested. You know, and I'm in my Volvo wagon and about two miles down the road, I, I just got something in my head that says, you got to pick this guy up. So I pick him up and I you know, have to drive quite a ways back, maybe two miles past where I saw him and he's still there and I pick him up. I don't know why. And I said, how you doing? I saw you hitchhiking. He says, well, thanks for the ride. I'm, I'm going to my sister to pick up my things. And, uh, I said, you okay? Is, you know, you get lost or you lose your car. And he says, Oh no, I I've got to tell you that I was released from a recent release from a state mental hospital. He says, I'm okay. Just had a, an issue a while back. And, and, uh, you know, if, thinking about taking my life and stuff. And, and he, he mentioned something about once you've had, once you've been dead and come back, he says, you get a different, uh, you look at life differently. You, you appreciate it a little bit more. And I said, well, that's unusual. I've, I've had a near death experience. And so is my father. It's one of the few intimate moments we've had talking about, you know, 
dying and seeing the the all the things that they talk about in, in those in those weird stories and then coming back to life and i said yeah i'm not afraid of death anymore and he says neither am i he says that's what my father told me too he says I'm, i've been there i'm not afraid of death and he says what was your father like and i said well he was an engineer and aerospace blah 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 and somehow he said well that's what i did and he said i worked at our aerojet general testing facilities and stuff and i said you wouldn't have worked in Norco at the facility over there when they were testing the, um, the, where they tested the big engines and stuff. And he goes, yeah, as a matter of fact, that was my first job. And I said, well, my father was there and, and he's, he was instrumental in, in one of the projects there. I said, were you, did you know anything about the uh, Saturn V explosion? And he says, I was there that day. He says, tell me about your father. What did he look like? And I said, well, he's about as high, tall as me, not too tall, much better looking, very athletic, you know, and he's, he, um, he had a little sarcastic humor to him. And he says, and I said, his, his job there was to test the, the thrust of the engines and explain the deal. And he goes, well, that's unusual. I think I met your father. And he said, I was just out of school. And back then there was no... There was not enough engineers, so they would go to the colleges and they would choose the best engineers and offer you jobs before you graduated. So I had a salary and a job as an engineer before I went. And my very first job was at the uh, test facility over there in Norco. And he said, the, I was treated like crap. He said the, the chief engineers walked around in big white outfits with their pocket protectors and their slide rules and they treated us like just just junk and he said i want you to go help that man over there and and he was very athletic he's exactly like you said and my first job was he would climbing all he'd be climbing like all over these giant gantries and he'd make little chalk circles and my job was to put strain gauges on the circles and hook them up to wires which would later we'd hook up to the computers and he said I met your father. And I said, was it as big of an explosion? And he said, and he has, he said, it was, it ruined, it destroyed the entire facility. He said the people were, engineers were just walking around, talking and looking at the ground and they were speechless. He said it was apocalyptic. So it was a crazy circle of life where I got to meet my yeah. father 10 or 15 younger than I was, years younger than I was at the time and, and get a little cameo of what he actually did and who he was like. And he said, I, liked, I remember him most because he treated me like an equal. He said he was the only person at the facility that, that said, that didn't talk down to me. He just says, hey, do you want to do this or can you go do that? And, and uh, he was conversational and kind. And I thought, wow, I've, I never wow. saw my father at work, you know? The world feels pretty small sometimes, doesn't it, RC? <laughs> well, if you're in the bicycle industry, it's it's a tiny spaceship. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to talk about bikes yet, though, RC. This is too interesting. Wait, <laughs> for people that don't know, R RC, RC loves flying probably more than riding his bike, I think. where RC, did that come from your father? Where did that come from? It's probably came from my father uh, as he wanted to fly really bad and when he was in high school he and his high school friends made one of those 
primary gliders. You could see in Mechanics Illustrated back then they had plans for them, and they would fly yeah. the glider every once in a while. But after that, um, his father uh, died when my when he was really young. My father said the oldest living male on his side of the family was 54. His father died at 54. So he had to take over while he was in college. He had to he had to basically support his family and take over the dad role. So he didn't have enough money to follow up with his aviation desires. So he studied to be a aircraft mechanic and that's what he did in World War II and later on he finished his engineering degree and he was brilliant enough mm -hmm. to, with just a basic engineering degree to go up pretty much the top of the ladder. So, yeah, I think I got it from him. Did you, did you guys ever do much riding together, RC, on bikes? Bicycles? No, I built him a custom bicycle yeah. when, I was, when I was at Mantis. And we rode together a little bit, which was oh. really fun. It was just, you know, father, son. We actually rode to a, an air show in Chino and talked jets and stuff. Yeah. And that was the last... I think the Chino Air Show was the last time I ever rode bicycles with my father. And his, he followed his father's thing. At 54, he had his first heart attack. And uh, after that, he was yeah. pretty steady. He didn't get to do a lot of stuff. Otherwise, he's an outdoorsman. He was yeah. a pretty wonderful guy. What did, what, did, what did your father think about you taking a massive umbrella... And trying to catch some air, RC, trying to take off. Well, the flying thing... What did the rocket scientist <laughs> father think of that? <laughs> the flying thing started way before that. I, I was building airplanes I thought was, was, were going to fly from when I was in middle school. I, I would go through the trash. I would find... Really? Redwood, pieces of redwood for spars, and, and I'd get shower curtains, and I'd wrap them around ribs that I made, and I would actually make small airplanes, and I'd take them up to... Uh, this Acacia Street, which was a big, the steepest hill in the neighborhood. It went by my school. And I'd try to go down and take off, you know, just going down the asphalt, just trying to steer the thing. And that always would end up with just blood and just shredded stuff everywhere. But I kept trying. And my mom said, I will give you 50 bucks if you make an airplane that actually flies. I even tried to make a helicopter. I found a... Uh, well, that's harder. Drive that's cable. Harder. For it. I found some weird drive cable that was in a sheath that was from some industrial thing, and I and I hooked it up to pedals from an old Schwinn bike, and and I had these big redwood. You know, I spent hours filing the the aerodynamic aerodynamic shapes, and I made the the blades and everything like that, and it actually went around and stuff. But just just pedaling it destroyed the whole thing. So I I worked on many designs, and and I I'd shown to my father. And he'd say, well, Richard, uh, that's, a, that's a good try. Uh, you got the fuselage down. but..." And then my brother, Michael, he used to explain it like this. He'd say, well, well that's, a, that's a good design. You kind of got everything in the right place. And then he'd cock the gun. <laughs> but you're going to need 126 <laughs> square feet of wing <laughs> before it'll carry a man. And you're going to have a more powerful engine your dreams, than the now. Briggs and Stratton four horsepower. <laughs> And that propeller is not going to develop enough thrust. And we're just shot to pieces. And we, every time we come, but, you know, we had the courage yeah. to show them the next one, you know, and that's how I learned engineering. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so 
when when did all that tinkering with planes finally turn into a plane, RC? When because you've built a few planes. Like, when did it? When did you build your first plane? Well, the first plane was the umbrella, and I've told the story before. I yeah. think it's in an interview, but it's worth a, a cursive try at it. So basically, you have to imagine I probably weighed sixty pounds at the most. I mean, I was little. This was when I was in middle school and I was going through the trash and I found this big, big, big picnic, kind of like a patio umbrella. And it was really well built. It had metal stays on it. And I thought, wow, I could do something with this. So I, I folded it up I pulled it out of the trash and I hid it in the bushes. And that day, the Santa Ana winds are blowing really hard. And behind my school, my little Catholic school there, there was a one of those embankments they built when they terrace housing developments, but it was a big one. It was about maybe a hundred feet from top to bottom, maybe 50, because I was little. I was probably using Richard feet <laughs> at the time. They're just like pig bike feet, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's like it's like North Shore stunt feet. <laughs> My 30-foot drop, and you're like, yeah. dude, that telephone pole over there, that's 31 feet. And you're like, uh, okay, maybe it's... 28. Maybe my drop's 10 feet. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, we have these Santa Ana winds and they blow through the canyon. They get going really fast. I mean, sustain 35 gusts up to 50 and it's just blowing dust in your face. And I thought, wow, I bet you I can, I can jump off this thing with this, with this umbrella and fly. So I broke the handle. So it was shorter. So I, I wouldn't be sticking in the ground when I was, when I was, doing it and i bent the front into an aerodynamic shape and i twisted the stays against each other and i worked for a little while and this was after school and i and i waited for the gust to get as strong as i could and i'd run and jump off the hill and of course nothing would happen i just (laughs) down to the bottom but it felt you could feel the the lift you know it was like i was almost there and then this one time the gust picked up just as i went off the edge and i stayed in the air about six inches maybe 12 inches off the ground for most of the downhill and it was i was really flying i was like and then the crash of the century i mean nose into all the wire stays the umbrella was shredded i was bleeding from a couple of places but i flew and i was like i I went home like almost at a run you know that coyote that coyote trot i was like down through the little trails that we made through the through the the orange groves and i got home and i go mom mom i flew you know i I told her the story and she says well that's really nice richard um what would you like for dinner and that was it (laughs) she didn't believe you rc (laughs) i didn't get my 50 bucks (laughs) i didn't even get i didn't even get acknowledgement for this but it was like the most awesome feeling and and i knew at that point that someday i would fly RC, I want to skip forward a little bit. Speaking of flying, to you teaching yourself how to fly. So if I if I wanted to fly, <laughs> I would I would head to a little airport and I would go into you know some place and say, hey, I'd like to fly. Here's a lot of money. Teach me how to do this. Let's go do this. What did RC do? <laughs> well. Yeah, I was building bicycles. RC didn't do that. <laughs> I was building bicycles at the time, and and uh, if you if you ever want to make a large fortune in the bicycle, a small fortune in the bicycle industry, you start with a large one. So I, I was basically barely yeah. making it, you know, ten thousand dollars a year. So I think that when a long time ago, before the Wright brothers, uh, people said if God was 
made man to fly, they, he, he would have given them wings, you know? And now it's just, if God was intended us to fly, he would have given us a lot more money. <laughs> I didn't have it. I was, yeah. a, I was a thousand air. <laughs> so my father um, decided he was going to build an ultralight. And ultralights are in the United States. You don't need a license. You don't need, you don't even need to have a certified to build. And it was the first time he could ever. They're the fly. motor scooters of the sky. RC. Yeah, it's like literally a lawn chair. If you saw a picture, I wish I wish this was a was a, a bit of a video so I could show you a picture of what the original one looked like. So I helped him build it. Mainly, yeah. he and my brother Gerard did most of the work, but I helped him a little bit. And in exchange, he, he said I could fly it. But you know, it's single seat. So I was now you know now I had to put up or shut up. <laughs> I've always wanted to fly. I dreamed about it so often. I had, I still have flying dreams, you know, where you just jump and fly around and look at all your neighbors and stuff. So anyway, back to this. So the yeah. time, my time came and we went, we all went out there. And of course, we at this time, we had to put the airplane together. So it took like three hours to put the airplane, the wings on and the tail and get it all ready from, from the back of the truck. And then you had to start the engine and then you had to fly it when there's hardly any wind. So by this time, the wind's howling. I'm like, good, I don't have to fly today. You know, maybe I'll get the courage to do it another day. <laughs> so, of course, I've read yeah. a couple of books and I knew how the basics were. And But really, I thought, you know, people do this every day. So I'm people. I should be able to people do People who take lessons, RC, they take lessons. <laughs> so... So the evening, the afternoon came, the winds went down, and my father looked, and, and my uncle was there, and he says, okay, Richard, you want to fly? And I, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I was lying. I was just, I, I didn't want to fly. My, I was starting to get sick to my stomach. I was thinking of all sorts of excuses. So my uncle says, okay, well, I'll take it up, make sure everything's okay, and I'll bring it down, and you can fly it. I said, great, you know, great. And so he took it up, and yeah. a, a, a little tiny clamp, a hose clamp, got loose from from something and hit the propeller and cracked it. Big splinter came off, vibrations all over the place. He landed it and he goes, well, looks like our flying's over. And I'm thinking, yes, I don't have to fly today, you know, because I just didn't have the courage, you know. I was thinking, wow, I'm going to actually have to do this. So my brother Gerard goes, Hey, there's an there's an ultralight airport about five miles away. I'll see if they have any propeller. They drove over there. I mean, what are the chances? Damn it, Gerard! The right diameter, the right pitch, the right drilling pattern. Everything came back with, with big smiles. I put the thing on. My uncle Tom took it around, landed it, and I had to get in. So I got in. Your brother wanted you up there, RC. Everybody there just looking. I was the only person that hadn't fl flown it out there. So I put the seatbelt on and the throttles there. I. I knew all the controls, where they were and all that stuff. I knew what they were supposed to do. And I thought, okay, let's go. And I just rolled the throttle on. And all of a sudden, it was a two-stroke engine. It came on the pipe. Whoa! And I was up in the air. Yep. Okay. <laughs> so I just flew it straight level. How? Just just a little off the ground, basically, no, right? Just going straight like above feet, the desert floor? 30, 40 feet. It was like the oh! ground was just going away. <laughs> and I and I didn't know where it liked to fly, so I just kept the throttle where it was, you know. So we're on this big dry lake. It's like a mile wide, six miles long. They do speed trials there, like full-on streamliner speed trials there, like Bonneville. But... I eventually I ran out of dry lake and I had to turn. So I'm like, whoa, I'm moving the stick and the rudder pedals. And I do this big gigantic turn. About the time I got it turned around, I ran out of lake again. So I learned how to just get it around. And I was just trying to figure it out. And I thought eventually I've got to land this thing. So I 
lined it up where all the cars were and I slowly came in over the dry lake. And the wheels hit and that was it. I flew an effing airplane with an engine in it and I was like, wow. And, and that's the beginning. After that, I, I flew all the time and I learned how to do pretty good and I didn't have, I didn't take lessons with an instructor until much later. Um, and at that time, you know, I was pretty good with a stick and rudders, but there's a lot to learn because everything on an airplane is easy until something goes wrong. And then everything you have to do to save your life is counterintuitive. Like point the thing directly at the ground and dive. <laughs> so that, that first flight RC, you were petrified. I was. When you landed that thing, what, what was that like when you landed? Was it just like the greatest moment of your life? <laughs> I was so happy to not be in the airplane. Everybody's like, wow, good job. You know, and they're all patting me on the back and I'm just like, okay. They said, you want to fly it again? I said, no, I think I'll fly it next week. Uh, you know, it, just, I did, it was, <laughs> it was enough. It was like, <laughs> you know, when, when you line up, a, when you line up the biggest jump you've ever done, your friends are like, just follow me through, follow me through, but you don't. You know, you stop at the top and have yeah. a second look at it. And then you have to do it all on your own. You have to judge everything and and figure out what the speed is and stuff. And just and you're coming down, and you just and there's that point where you normally would hit the brakes and not do it. And you look, force your fingers out. You know, and, and everybody so goes, Oh, that's cool. Let's do it again. You're like, no, no, I let's let's do let's see what else is down the trail. <laughs> Yeah, I don't need to do it again. One and done. <laughs> you know what they say, RC? For first time luck, second time skill. That's what we used to say to each other when we do big jumps and drops. Well, the, I and to... I tell you, it worked out. The first time was luck a lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Saving your life makes you really yeah. brave. <laughs> right. <laughs> Would you, RC, if you went back... Would you take lessons or would you teach yourself to fly again like that? I would probably take lessons. and But you have to wait longer to, to so. I mean, literally, my first flight was solo. <laughs> if you yeah, took lessons. That's, that's wild. You'd probably fly for six, six months to a year before you soloed, you know? Yeah, and yeah. And this was, like, amazing. But the good part about it was is it gave you it gave me a lot of confidence it's like i realized okay if i can fly if i can fly you know and it's not this hard i can learn i can learn everything else and it's i've flown some really cool airplanes it's, and the what i learned on the ultralights these little tiny lawn chairs and stuff gave me a lot of of skills that some pilots don't ever get you know Flying in horrible turbulence, and you're still flying to this day, aren't you? Yeah, I I was flying uh, last weekend. I'm gonna go, I'm going to go tomorrow. So, <laughs> speaking of flying, RC, you're you're also currently working on a little project, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I'm almost done. In fact, I've I'm putting the the coverings on. I, I built a little biplane. It was a I wanted a an airplane that was with a wingspan that was short enough so I could land on these dirt roads out in the middle of the desert and check out volcanoes and old mines and stuff. And the dirt roads are generally about 25, 30 feet wide. So I, most of the wingspans are more than that. And you, so you whack bushes and fences. And so anyway, made a little biplane 
And I've been working on it for about two and a half years and it's almost ready to go. Is it a, is it a biplane RC because you want less wingspan so you can land on those skinny roads, therefore you need four wings instead of two? Is, it, is that simple? There's a little bit more to it, but as I started working on the concept, I was starting with just a, a monoplane, which is a little bit more efficient. But every time I got to the to what I was looking for, it just, nothing really fit. So I added the wing area so I could fly a little slower. And in doing adding the wing, mm-hmm. wing area, I just biplane made sense. Plus, I could make it stronger with the bracing that I'm using. It needs to yeah. be pretty rugged. You're building this thing in your living room. I built it in my basement. No, I built my first airplane in my in my living room, and I I said to my wife at the time, I said I can build it at the at the airport, but I'm going to be gone every weekend and a couple days a week. I can build it inside the living room because we didn't have a garage or anything, and she and and I'll be home. And she says, "Build it here." So for bless her soul, for a year in order to do the laundry. She had a duck underneath the wings <laughs> that was building in there and bring everything off to the corner. It's just, it was, but it was nice to get it out of the house, <laughs> but I have a basement now. Yeah. Yeah. And I built it in the basement. The same deal. I, I had to, I, the first time I had it all together was just uh, three weeks ago or four weeks ago where I took everything out of the basement and I arranged and, and set all the wings at the right angles and stuff. And I got to sit in it and make all the flying noises, you know. <laughs> we should probably go from wings to wheels, ARC. Yeah, this is a Can, bicycle show, isn't talk it? about motorbikes. <laughs> oh, no. No, no, no. It's a motorbike show now. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone listening is like, when are they going to talk about bicycles? <laughs> Maybe well, next episode, everybody. This has a lot. This has a lot to do with bicycles, but it, you know, people always say, "Hey, yeah. RC, how can you tell the future about the bicycle industry? How do you how do you know sometimes accurately? Sometimes they say because I've made some huge errors, but how how it's going to go? And it's because I started in motorcycles about the s- same period of time mm-hmm. when I started in bike in mountain bikes. So there was no such thing as a, as a real dirt bike pretty much worldwide they were all just street bikes that were converted to dirt bikes i mean even the motocross stuff that came later so when i first started riding motorcycles you'd buy a motorcycle and take off the exhaust pipe to make it loud and find some handlebars you just have to throw everything on and just cob it together and they were just piles of crap but that's what we we rode in the dirt and actually raced and then during that period um i just basically i started riding motorcycles as a young teenager, probably before my freshman year. So probably when I was 12, I think my father allowed us to have a motorcycle. We had to promise that we would do a whole bunch of stuff. Back in the day. That wouldn't happen now. (laughs) And then we we rode motorcycles for a while. And then we bought bought a twin-cylinder Yamaha that was really just a... A road bike. It was heavy, and my brother and I had to share it. So we rode together all these places. In fact, we visited that Rocket Dime place. We broke into it, and the and the uh, guard, security guard, chased us. It was like the chase of the century because um, we had friends that lived. <laughs> anyway, we we ran. <laughs> so, a vehicle went out. You the, could get in big trouble for that, oh, RC. Yeah, we knew. The <laughs> gate went up because a, a, a delivery truck was coming through, and we squeezed like 30 miles an hour between the delivery truck yeah. and the gate, and we were out. But it was a it was a harrowing experience. A lot of people are familiar with 
the welding that you did at Mantis, building your own frames. But you did some welding with some motorbike stuff before that RC, some exhaust stuff. And that, that eventually led to bikes, didn't it? What's, what's the story with that? How did you get into that? Um, okay, so <laughs> I actually went to summer school before I went to high school because you had to have a year's in experience in shop class to be able to go take metal shop. So I went to summer school and I took some stupid shop class so I could take metal shop in my first year so I could learn how to weld. So I actually made my first motorcycle in, in high school <laughs> in metal shop. <laughs> I, made my, I made one I just out of cobbed out pieces of junk anyway. But back to this. I was racing yeah. another motorcycle at the time, but I actually made one there. So anyway, I always wanted to weld. And when my sophomore year, uh, I, I got a job at a place called Bassani Manufacturing. And they were one of the first two-stroke, high-performance exhaust system people when, when uh, motorcycles were starting to explode on the dirt and road racing and stuff in, in the United States. And I got a job welding there. My brother and I, my brother Mike and I were like 13 years apart, so we did everything together in our, in our youth. And the guy that hired me is named Jim Cook. And if anybody knows who Aaron, his sons, they're famous in uh, X Games, and uh, I believe Aaron is... Um, is in specialized right now. He's one of their Alan. Their, yeah, excuse me, Alan. Alan Cook. Yeah, he's there. Anyway, I've, I've held Alan in my hands when he was the size of a large potato. That's pretty funny. How there's another <laughs> circle. Alan know that? Yes, he does. <laughs> and Jim Cook, his father, who gave me my first welding job, is is still a good friend of mine. We rode uh, we we rode a couple of techie trails together uh, two weeks ago. He's, he's an animal. He's 70, 71 years old, and the guy just humiliates me, uphill, downhill. He was a professional motocross racer at the time. So anyway, he gave me my first welding job, and it was gas welding because all those exhaust systems and stuff were all gas welded, and it was kind of like a, a dying art, a dead art, actually, that, that ended up, that's how they built airplanes before World War II. And, but anyway, I learned the skill, and later on... Uh, I started a fabrication shop. I used to do exhaust, custom exhaust systems for people uh, and for the, at the high-level racing, and, and I actually made products. And, and then I also did uh, fabrication work. I did suspension work and you know, converted uh, old-style bikes to the more progressive lay-down shocks and changed the geometry. It was a lot of work, but, and I didn't make any money at it, but that's what I did. And so as, at the end of that, I was underneath a car, well, tack, tacking together an exhaust, a stainless steel exhaust system with a MIG welder for uh, 24 hours of 24 hour racing Nissan that was had to go to Daytona the next day. And I was under the car and I was tacking it, and balls of hot metal were raining down upon me because it's really hard to, to kind of hold all those pieces together in the middle of the night. I mean, it was an absolute must be done job. And, and I remember balls of plasma which is when the metal is so superheated it's it has an aura around it that's that causes it to dance on surfaces well i had these little plasma balls of mig welding stainless steel wire bouncing off my testicles they just burned right through my pants and i couldn't let go of the exhaust system because it had to stay in place until the tacks were firm and i thought to myself this is i don't want to do this anymore i don't want to smell like gasoline 
and and work on cars you know someday cars won't exist and only you know clean transportation i was one of those i was having one of those moments and so i decided to go to college hippie this is how i got to bicycles right here i decided to go to college yeah. and uh, and do, learn how to be a preschool teacher <laughs> start preschools what? yeah i just a preschool, to be a preschool teacher. teacher i wanted to do something that was beneficial to society and while i was finishing up this this thing i i found a schwinn bicycle a schwinn road bike and it was tied it was locked to a post and it was there for like a month and nobody had found it nobody had like so i went over with my pickup truck 56 Ford pickup that I loved and I parked it next to the pole and I lifted the whole thing over the top of the no parking sign and I put it in the back of my truck I called the police I gave them the, the serial number and I says I, I have a bicycle and I think it may have been stolen uh, could you please check the records and see if there's anybody that's, that uh, has done it and they said yes Mr. Cunningham we'll do that there's no record here of a stolen bike and I said well that's wonderful thank you if anybody calls let them know that I have it Anyway, nobody called, and that bicycle, it was a Schwinn Varsity, the cheapest pile of junk, 30-pound, steel, 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 10-speed. And I started riding it, and I got totally into it. I was riding it here, there. Pretty soon I started, I found out where a time trial training, anyway, I got into bicycles with a, from a Schwinn Varsity. And the Schwinn Varsity is from the old school when Schwinn actually made bikes in Chicago. And they were welded together by this giant machine that pressed all the tubes together and gave it a million volts. And sparks would come out of all the junctions, just... And the two tubes would just push together. And then they had women with grinders and these these determined faces with face masks on. They grind off the welds and they dump them into a vat of paint. And all of them were the same. And they were so sturdy that I think if there was a nuclear explosion in the Southern California that turned everything into sand. There would be Schwinn varsities and collegiates frames sitting on top of the white sand with no paint on them. That's how durable they were. And I, after that, I was sold. I started buying a better bicycles and stuff and, and, uh, and working at a bike shop, Fullerton bike shop, which sold Schwinn's. I went to Schwinn school to learn how to be a mechanic you went to the Schwinn school. I went to Schwinn school. And it, what was funny is I, it was so easy. You know, we're taking apart three-speed hubs. And I was helping other people that were having trouble. And because I was helping yeah. other people, the time allotted, you know, they had stopwatches. Hey, let's see if uh, CFRC can get that thing to, whoa, 45 seconds late. I, I, I was, an ex they gave me a, a graduation <laughs> slip that said I was an excellent mechanic, but I wasn't, I didn't have mechanical aptitude. <laughs> what? I should what? say it. <laughs> it's just <laughs> that would have been great. So, so sometime when I was while I was doing that, I started into B level racing and you know the whole road racing scene. I was wearing spandex and I had little ballerina shoes and we had toe clips and cleats and all that stuff. And that's basically I was totally into it at some point. And uh a man walked in and said that uh they were hiring at Medici Bicycles. It was a custom bike builder in Los Angeles, and they needed somebody that, that knew about filing and working and stuff. And I still had my shop. I was still paying rent on it. I just shuttered it. And, and I thought, that's a cool deal. So next week, 
I was over there and they hired me. And so I was working for um, uh, for Medici Bicycles for about two or two and a half, three years. It was about, what, 29 miles from my house. And I, to train, I would I'd get up in the middle of the night, like it's dark, and I'd get out for three, three, ta- three times a week. I would use it as training because that's 60 miles. And uh, I was on these, these industrial highways, and there's this big bread-making place. This, this cut my time by like probably 30 minutes. And these trucks would come out at nighttime, and I'd, and I'd draft them as far as I could. And it'd just be for miles every time they'd stop at a light. And pretty soon they knew who I was. And so they would actually push traffic out of the way. They'd run lights to see how long I could stay. And they'd just be... When I'd be behind them, pretty soon I'd be in my 54 tooth chain ring, just spinning at 120 mile, uh, RPM. And I'd just stay right. And all you could hear was the clicking of the... The, of the suspension and and the rolling of the tires and you'd be going past all the cars and stuff and, and the, the drivers loved it so basically that's how i learned about bicycles in the traditional way filing frames and brazing and and all those skills i learned from basani uh came to play and uh i remember one time thinking when i when i was riding uh, i was doing gravel rides because i'd ridden Everywhere you could possibly train, and I got sick of before, it. Before, before his time, everybody. Before this is, <laughs> I got the idea from. <laughs> I got the idea actually from um, uh, another another frame builder that got into uh, got into bicycles, got into mountain bikes later as well. Ross Schaefer, he was a cyclocross guy in in Orange County, and he had a small frame building shop. But he told me about going across the mountains on his road bike. And I said, really? And so the next week, I was going across the mountains on my road bike. And I was, I was amazed that they would actually be able to do these dirt roads and sandy sections and stuff. And I thought, man, I'm working at, I was working at a Schwinn shop. And we had all these cruisers, beach cruisers and racing cruisers. Uh, BMX racing cruisers were the thing. But we didn't have aluminum rims yet. And I thought, the moment we get aluminum rims, I'm going to build myself a bicycle for, with these tires, you know, fat tires and stuff. Uh, and and uh, Araya and Yukai came out with with aluminum rims like two weeks after I had that dream, you know. And I went back to my shop and I started. I was working at Medici, and I went back to my shop and I started making front triangles and starting assembling a bike together. But the guy that gave me the courage was a uh, another. Family. And that was your. That was your yeah, first mountain that was bike. The beginning. I made my first mountain bike, and that's funny because occasionally somebody will say, you know lying back in a chair. I was, RC, what was your first mountain bike? And I said, well, I was, um, I made it. There really weren't very many mountain bikes around there. But to, to tell you the truth, there were. What, what year was that, RC? It was probably 80, 1981 or 82, probably 81, because I started Mantis in 82. Okay. And yeah. there were... What, what was rich- the catalyst for you starting Mantis? Um... Well, I failed at my first attempt at making um, at making a business when I when I did my fabrication shop. It was trying to do a whole bunch of odd jobs with cars and stuff that didn't work. But doing my motorcycle exhaust stuff that worked okay. 
but I never really made any money. I mean, literally, I, I was like, if you look at my my financial records, when they send them to you, the government sends them every once in a while, there's a whole bunch of zeros during that period of time. <laughs> you made no income, <laughs> Mr. Cunningham. <laughs> yeah. But I was determined to do something on my own because really, I only had a high school education and an AA I, I think I had an AA or I was, I was a day away from it in, in uh, child development. And so I had to really make it on my own if I was going to do something. I learned engineering from my father. Mm. That was super helpful. And, uh, and so I thought I, got so, I was so into bikes. You know, I knew how to make them now because Medici showed me all the basics and stuff. And, and mountain biking was just starting. My friend Monty uh, Ward had a mountain biking uh, cult in, in uh, South Orange County that I heard about. And Richie was making bikes and I saw one. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. So after I made my first couple of bikes, um, I made one for a professor, a geological professor. I still have it. I think it's downstairs. It's pretty amazing because I, I had hub brakes and all this other stuff. And, and I thought, just like everybody else, that a mountain bike, it's, you talk about gravel, you know, they just, Gravel bikes are like mountain bikes were before where you just put fat tires on a road bike and you kind of slack it out one degree, to, you know, here, a half a degree there. Yeah. So it still feels help. just right, you know. <laughs> so my first mountain bikes were so steep, they were just stupid to ride. I, I, I gave it to a guy that was a really good bike handler and I asked him to go on a ride with some with my friend Monty because they were really good. I was afraid that they'd see how crappy of a rider I was. So he came back and he says, climbs really well. I thought I was going to die on the descent. You're going to have to do something about the geometry, but that was my inspiration. And and once I once I started riding a, a bad mountain bike in the hills, I, I was just it, this was it. Mm -hmm. I knew that this was going to be the next thing, and I I uh, I started plans to make mountain bikes, and the the name came almost just like Pink Bike. I mean, Pink Bike was named. Everybody's looking for a badass name like, you know, Trail Ripper. Yeah, that's a great name. Of course, you know, you, this is when all the squatters in, the, in BC were, were leading the, the, um, the internet name squatters were all in BC. So they, they go on the list and say, oh, that's already taken. How about uh, Loam Rapers? You know, okay, let's try that one. That sounds really good. You know, so, Loam Raper? <laughs> yeah. So this, this is rclomerapers.com. <laughs> this is. I was talking to Raddick and he told me the story a little bit. I, I'm paraphrasing here. <laughs> so anyway, somebody said, yeah, let's yeah. just go the opposite direction. How about pink bike? And they're like, oh, that's so stupid. Ah, you know, but this time they were pretty, alcohol was playing a part in, in, in the decisions. But when they woke up the next morning and the hangovers wore off, the only one they remembered was pink bike. So they, they looked it up and the domain was available and that's how pink bike was. So I was thinking of all the, yeah. <laughs> That's it. You know, history was made. Yeah. Alcoholic Canadians. It works really good. So anyway, so I had a similar thing. I was living with a woman uh, named Sarah, and I was telling her all these names I was coming up for my awesome corporation. And they were really simple, like Overland Cycle Company. And she goes, that sucks. You know, it's just everyone's going to look at that. I go, what does Overland mean? So she says she was a bug nut. She liked bugs, every kind of bug. She says, what about mantises? Mantises are really cool. Just name it Mantis. And I said, that's so dumb. And I said, but if I can't come up with a better name in a week, I'll use it. So I looked it up. And uh, the, the definition of Mantis is 
in the first definition is a, is a it's kind of like a Greek prophet. It came from the Greek, and and because the praying mantis and stuff is like that's how it, the insect got its name in a different way. But it all leads to that Greek kind of like wild man that goes into the to the uh, you know into the, in the environment and and lives this life of, of and I thought well. We're wild men. We're going out of the environment. That's We're fitting. solo acts. You that know? is fitting, R.C. So I, I thought, you know, Sarah wins. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I got the name. <laughs> and and yeah. I, it, it, was, it turned out to be wonderful. I liked it. You know, and that started the bike how, how many years did you, how many years did you weld Mantis Frames for? Well, I started, and I got I to gotta give a shout out to a guy named Mark Grayson. Mark Grayson was my neighbor at the time. And he was a good welder and a fabricator. He made a uh, vibratory feeders, and that's, those aren't for chickens. They're the little, they're the little tiny vibrating cans that deliver parts to automated assembly de- devices. And so he was really good with his hands. He was spectacularly creative with it, with how he, he solved problems. And and I asked him if he wanted to go in with me. So the two of us, you know, I was starting to make bikes already, but I thought. You know, now that I've got a real name and, and I'm going to go out, I'm going to need some help. And Mark seemed like the perfect guy, and he's still around. He's he and I uh, worked for uh, three years together, and we the the pay was abysmal. We we'd go the the sport was so new that we'd go to these high end bike shops and we'd try to sell them mountain bikes and we had slide shows and stuff. And they would say, We're, we can't sell beach cruisers for $1,200, you know, like scram punks. And uh, one time how, we... How much were bikes going for back then, RC? They were about twelve dollars or $1,300 to, to buy a complete bike. Yours were, but how much were the other bikes? You know, uh, ro- road walking bikes into a bike were, store, you want a beach cruiser? They were, they were uh, the most expensive beach cruiser, I think, was 300 bucks, And you could get one for 125 Nice one. Like In other words, you had an uphill battle. Way it was it was bad. So we were we were actually the sandwich shop next door took pity on us, and they would bring us bags of bread that they were going to throw away, and they'd give us a bag of bread every day. And sometimes that's what we ate. We just eat rolls for dinner, you know. And uh, it got pretty yeah. bad. We <laughs> so we had that come to Jesus moment, and uh, and Mark was just so disappointed that it didn't work. And I was so up. I was Mr. You know, yeah, this is going to work all the time. And I realized maybe it wouldn't, you know. So we had to come to Jesus moment. We split up. I took the debt. He was unhappy. He got screwed, I think. Is really, we should have we should have made it. I mean, I just wasn't a good businessman. And he was from Indiana. He believed in yeah. doing what you're going to say you're going to do, never being late, pay your bills. You know, he was a straight guy. And I was like, things are going to just fall onto us. You know, money will appear. Rent yeah. will, you know, we'll be able to pay rent. Honestly, something will happen. And I, was, you, I was the guy that was shuffling. You're more freeform, RC, oh, God. like me. <laughs> yeah. So, so <laughs> it it got to that point, and he left and started up a couple of with a couple other people, and he was making bicycles and doing other stuff. And now I, he's pretty happy now. He's in. He's got a bunch of homes, investments. He's done well for himself. And so all of that. That uh, stick to itiveness that he got from Indiana paid off. How many how many mantis frames got made by you? I don't remember the number, but it was just probably. I don't think we made more than a couple thousand. 
I had the numbers, but yeah. When we first started, we were making a frame or two, about three frames a month. They took so much effort. We were fillet brazing them and sanding them and all that stuff. Then we started TIG welding and we got a little faster and the money started coming in a little bit better. And, and, uh, but what really was the break point was when, when I developed the half steel and half aluminum bikes and wait, what? Yeah. I, I, I started making, I, I, you know, aluminum bikes were, were coming up. Cannondale was doing pretty good. Uh, Klein was making, you know, making them. And I started looking at aluminum. And I thought, you know, that's a good idea for the front triangles because the front triangles, there's no space requirement. RC, before, before we get into this, I have a question. How did you heat treat them? <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a heat treater and it, it cost a lot oh. of money. <laughs> no, we, we didn't do our heat treating on our own. By this time, we were making bikes. Yeah, you know, we had we had a, a, an employee and a half, and and we were actually making bikes and doing pretty well. Our steel bikes were pretty well recognized, and and uh, they handled great. But I needed a. I realized at some point that mountain bikes are going to get trashed. I mean, you're going to take them out of the dirt and hammer them. So why make them look pretty? Why not just weld them, leave the welds out, and build you know build the right geometry and, and, and the right stuff. Put your money somewhere else. And that was that's where it helped. But the turning point was um, was was a funny story. Uh, a guy named Lynn Caston, he owned Redline. Uh, he was instrumental. He made one-sided forks. He's a little bit of a crazy man. He wanted to get into mountain bikes with Redline, and he had a guy. I think his name was Takanieda, who was his he was his uh, Japanese manufacturer. This was before China. Almost all the bicycles that were produced for the uh, affordable ends were made in Japan and they really made nice bikes. But I didn't know that. I had sold my pickup truck, my, my beloved 56 Ford, to pay rent. I was riding my bicycle back and forth to work. I was on the, I was on the skids. I, couldn't, I was bouncing che- paychecks to my, my part-time worker. I had to pay him cash. He just, RC, you're going to have to pay me cash. And even then, I had to tell him, look, I don't think you, you can work here anymore. And it was just getting down. And I was riding back and forth to work, and there's this little penny that was at an intersection in the gravelly part where nobody drives. And every time I'd pass it, I'd say, I'd hear that little, find a penny, pick it up all day, you'll have good luck. And I'm like, fuck that, I'm going to go to work. So one day, that same, I passed the same penny, and I, I said, screw it. I went around about a mile, turned around, I picked up the penny, I stuffed it in my pocket. I jam over to work, and uh, there's Lynn Caston and Takanieda sitting outside my shop. They've been waiting for three hours for me to show up. I was I got there at like 11 or 10 or something. And they introduced themselves, and they said, we uh, want to make mountain bikes at Redline, and we'd like you to design a bike for us. And uh, how much would that cost? And, and I asked about royalties, and they said, no royalties. You're just going to get paid for the job. So I came up with a huge sum of money that I thought was just gigantic. I think it was two thousand five hundred dollars. You know, well, I had to take yeah. a deep breath, like <laughs> so much money. You know, take you know, is that enough? Is that too much? Two thousand five hundred dollars. And I said, done. How how soon can you have the drawing and a prototype? And I said, well, you're gonna have to buy the prototype separate. And they said, okay. How much is that gonna cost? And I said, seven hundred dollars. <laughs> Yes, RC. Yes. So, <laughs> I made the prototype, <laughs> uh, and and uh, did the, the drawings and stuff like that. And they paid me the money. But what 
the, it was kind of like magic. It, the, just the week before, my father came to my shop and he says, I know you're suffering here, Richard. Why don't you just call it a day? You know, you've tried really hard. You've done a yeoman's job. And this is one of the only times he's just given me straight advice. He said, just, just get rid of the shop, get a job, and, and consider it a job well done. And he handed me a check for $500 and said, this is a little to help you out. It's not a lot, but he said, just think about it. And he, and he drove away. It was the middle of the night. And the next, and I, I thought, no, I'm going to prove him wrong. You know, he was right. I probably should. Have. And then this happened, and from that moment, it wasn't like that $2,500 made a difference. But from that moment, the a dollar we'd make it. I made a little profit, a little bit more each month. It was like the the turning point, and suddenly I got. You know, I designed different bikes. You also designed the Nashiki Alien, and that had that aluminum front end and steel rear end is that right yeah that's that's what kind of got me on the map what's the deal why what, what was that meant to accomplish the aluminum front end with the steel rear end well it, you got to fast you got to go back in time we didn't have offset cranks and there's a lot of clearance issues and so if you wanted tire clearance you had to make the stays really small in the rear or squish them yeah. and you have to bend them in a really crazy little s bend and stuff and that gave you the minimal amount of tire clearance to get mud past the chainstays. If you wanted short chainstays, you had to squeeze every possible thing, make little dents, because the crank arms kind of went straight back, and the chain rings took up a lot of space. So steel rear end makes sense, because steel is strong in small diameters, where aluminum is only strong if you go to a larger diameter. So I decided, why don't I just put a steel rear end on aluminum front end to get the stiffness and light, lightweight of the aluminum and all the clearance and brake attachments I needed for the rear. And so I designed it up, and it looked kind of cool, and it worked really well. So that started the Mantis reputation for unusual designs. And I did the, the uh, Valkyrie, did... the X-Frame. Oh, yes. Yeah, and that yep. was... That was uh, a nod to Gary Fisher. I did a story for Mountain Bike Action. At the time, they were coming over and asking me to write stories on paper to help them out with their tech stuff. And I did a story after I rode one of his bikes, and I hit something, and it dimpled the um, the tube. And I said, I made a mention that it had Tongay tubing, and that's that it dimpled the tube. And I, I, I thought, it was just a slight mention, and Gary Fisher went mad. He actually flew me out. This is before I was a, I worked at Mountain Bike Action. He flew me out there, and he showed me. He did destruction testing with borrowed stuff he got from Charlie Cunningham to show that the, the way the Tongay Prestige tubing, the special tubing made in Japan, broke. was It would go to a certain point and then explode, you know? And he showed me that two or three times. And then we got all into it. Because both of us are nerds. And he says, well, why don't we test this? And yeah. we had an old uh, Charlie Cunningham frame. And we tested it. And it broke at like, you know, 1,200 pounds. And uh, the Tongay one broke at 800 pounds. And the standard steel frame broke at what I knew. Because I'd done the testing. It was about 350 pounds. If you pull the fork towards the frame, yep. like if you hit a curb or, or nose dived into a, a rut, 350 pounds would destroy yeah. a regular steel bike. And he says, let's test this Schwinn Excelsior. Because he had one that had been run over by a car, so the rear stays weren't valuable. And we threw it in. 
and it went to like 1100 pounds it almost went as high as the as as charlie Kel, uh, charlie cunningham's um uh, aluminum frame and we're like what that yeah. extra tube on the schwinn steel frames that look like they should be threaded to use for pipes gave it that much strength so i went home and i thought wow if I just added some X bracing into a really lightweight steel frame, I could like triple the strength. And so I drew it while I was in my underwear sitting on my bed and it looked just right. And I said, honey, and I looked at my wife at the time and I said, this is my new bike. And then two days later, I had one, I made it and it was brilliant. Just riding. Like that. Yeah. And it was, it was like, and then like a month later, mountain bike action wanted to put it in the magazine, in the magazine. And, and uh, so in just a, a really short time, this this new design got into the public, and it was a magic bike. Uh, and then shortly afterwards, I went to a different style frame. Those were those were very interesting days to me. I see, like I look back, and it was it looked like the wild, wild west of bike design. Anything was possible. RC, did you invent elevated chainstays? I don't think I invented them. Because I think there's a guy named Gary Trimble that was building ones with just straight chain stays. Oh, yes. Um, that might have been afterwards, but I was the first person to put them on a bike for a reason, I think. And that reason was where I lived, there's lots of clay. And we have the one half revolution mud where you go into this like kitty litter clay. The tires go around yeah. half revolution and you go over the bars. So I the figured, worst. Yeah. So I figured I could solve the short chain stays and mud clearance problem by not having this intersection, this this freeway intersection in the most difficult place of the bike. If I just moved away from that yeah. and went around. But remember we had big chain rings and front derailleurs at the time. So you had to go pretty high to get over the front derailleur. And it worked. But it it and it solved those problems and stuff. And it got captured the imagination of a lot of people at the time, and, and there was a lot of controversy. But let's go back to your statement when you said it was like the Wild West. It really wasn't. The mountain bike industry, oh. as from the creative end, came from a bunch of, of smelly wool-wearing uh, wool road riders and, a, and some ne'er-do-wells in, in Marin that, that liked flannels and, and, and Levi's, right? But... Our, our mentality, whenever you come up with a new idea, you, you clothe it in the old ideas. You know, when we talk about letting off steam <laughs> emotionally, it's what they did with steam engines, right? So we, use, mm -hmm. we used ideas and stuff that we thought were like sacrosanct to build mountain bikes, like the 23-inch medium-sized top tube, right? Where did that come from? Well, mm -hmm. 58 centimeters, 23 yeah. inches, it's all the same. It's just a road standard. And we used it. And we yeah. called that medium because everybody did. And it turns out it was three inches too short, right? Which we made up with stems later. Yeah. <laughs> That's another story. But but no, it was... Unfortunately. <laughs> when when uh, mountain bikes went to corporate, the, the big corporations, all, them, all those people were run by smelly old road guys that came out of road racing. And they resisted change. So that's why the 23-inch uh, mm -hmm. top tube, 70 one degree head angle, 73 degree seat angle was just a rubber stamp for almost the entire time I was at mountain bike action. I mean, like six years of that stuff. Norba geometry. RC. It was horrible. Yeah. It was Norba geometry. I think I named it that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. But it was like an impossible <laughs> thing. It just, it looked like 
it that's what a mountain bike should look like. So there was a lot of resistance to going to a different deal. And I think when I started going yeah. crazy and bolting bikes together and going with elevated chainstays, my only lasting um, gift mechanically to the bicycle industry was to show that a bicycle doesn't have to be nine tubes welded together in a particular sequence that we can actually break away if we want to solve problems and do it some other way. And it would still ride like a bicycle. And if you look at where we went once suspension happened and we ran into all those problems again, if you look at how crazy the rear swing arms and stuff are to get around the front derailers and all that stuff, we elevated chainstays are being used again and were used when, when suspension first started to solve all those problems again. So it was, it was a way to twist the imagination and break off that chunk that was steadfastly held by X road racers, you know, with shaved legs and stuff yeah. that just couldn't conceive of a bicycle in any other shape. And they were the people who were running it. Now the people that are running our sport are enduro bros, <laughs> and their vision is what's controlling what a bicycle should look like now. <laughs> RC, those Mantis days—they sound amazing. Like you were building some interesting stuff, you were coming up with new ideas, um, but then you went to mountain bike action. So what? What? What was the catalyst? How did you? How and why did you go from Mantis to mountain bike action? Well, you say Wild West. It was, I think I've used this as, a, as an explanation for pink bike as well. Nobody knew what a mountain bike should be, but everybody knew that it was, a mountain bike was an awesome sport. I mean, it was just like the newest and coolest thing ever. So it was just like a combination of space exploration and a gold rush. We were trying everything that we could possibly try to see what would be better. We were arguing between us, but we were all friends. We were all like this one community, you know? I, uh, Gary Fisher couldn't get his t- super tight hip stay, chain stays built in Japan. So he called me up and he says, hey, I think you can do this for me. Uh, if I sent you a bunch of tubing, could you bend my chain stays? And I said, sure. And so I bent the chain stays for his top level racing bikes for a year until he could get his Japanese people up, up to speed. And Tom Ritchie was, had a stock of, of like uh, Unicrown fork blades when we were making forks and stuff. And we'd all run out. Like sometimes Scott and Nicole run out. I, sometimes I'd run out. We'd call up Tom and go, hey, Tom, have you got any fork blades? And he goes, I can give you, you know, 10 pairs for X amount of dollars. And I'd send him the money. And so Tom would like, we were competitors, but we were actually, we were building a sport. So it didn't really matter. It's like if, if anybody that bought a new bike would bring five more people into the sport. And that's, that's how it was. And, and a small innovator like myself or, or some of the others out there could stay ahead of the large corporations because we understood the sport. We knew the people. And, and the large corporations were still being run by booger rollers from other sports. And when... <laughs> booger rollers. When we got... <laughs> As a bike shop term. That's a classic RC line. <laughs> I got that from Fullerton Schwinn. When we used yeah. to call those people that would lean over the counter and not buy anything and talk cycling all day. We used to call them booger rollers. Yeah. Hey, RC, we got a booger roll over here and I've got a job to do. Could you, could you talk to him for a while? <laughs> anyway, Ridiculous. back to this. So 
So at some point, you know, being a, a, a guy that had gone through the entire motorcycle industry and started seeing it go from from small companies that did suspension and made bikes and, and made motorcycles and and made forks and stuff to see to corporate Japanese companies assimilating all of the ideas that came from these small factories into awesome motocross bikes. I, I lived that whole thing and you know, I raced during that time and and saw how that that evolution hit and i anticipated that at some point the likes of specialized and would come up with dual suspension bikes that actually worked and and lightweight stuff that would compete and sell them for bargain basement prices using their their uh um uh quantities of manufacturing and those efficiencies to drive down the cost of those little special parts he had to make and i thought at some point that the small uh builders would be would be eliminated by the brilliance of these larger manufacturers, and uh, I was ta- I was thinking about bailing because I I would have to in order to make that leap, I would have to become a really good businessman, and I wouldn't be on. I'd have to hire engineers to do my job, and the really fun stuff was the creative process of building the prototypes and designing the bikes, and I realized that I would have to become a business manager and hire people to to do those things, and and I didn't. No, I didn't believe in myself that I would be able to to take the step away and run a business and compete with these people at the level of of GT and all that stuff. And I anticipated that that moment would come much sooner. But as it turned out, and that's why it, you asked me why um, I decided to become a mountain bike action editor. And the way that transpired was I was at the peak of my life. I had... Uh, contracts with three Taiwanese manufacturers that would just pay me money so they could call me up and ask me questions about the market. I was designing for component companies and Nishiki slash Raleigh with with design contracts and royalties and stuff and they were were paying out really well. I was making race bikes um, with other people's names on them for their teams. I believe that famous John Tomac picture of him in a skin suit racing downhill on that black bike. I built that. No. Yeah, I did. No way. Yeah, I did. I built that for him. He came to my... I see. He came to my shop. That is amazing. He called me up and he says, uh, I just got my hands on a four-inch travel fork. And I said, four-inch travel for downhill? That's a lot. <laughs> and he says, yes, and I, and I, I want a four-inch travel bike. To, to go with it, could you build me a race bike? And I said, yes, I could. It was He was work, racing for Raleigh at the time. And uh, so I, I designed it, and I showed him what I wanted to do, and I built the bike to not look like my designs. I needed it to look more conventional, like a Raleigh at the time. And I had a uh, um, Nolene's build the shock for me from scratch and they said i got the leverage wrong it was a falling rate that went to a rising rate right and the the motocross guys didn't believe in that and it was kind of accidental for me because i needed i needed to change the design a little bit and that created the rate change but it turned out to be just right because the falling rate made rc what was the what was the stroke on the shock the stroke on the shock was actually longer than you would think um it was about i believe it was a one and a half inch stroke it was built oh, yeah. just yeah, for that bike. Longer. But I also, you know, when you buy a, a a racing bike like a Ducati 917, you know, the racing models, 
you get spares with it. You get like pistons and all the tools and stuff. So I made his mechanic um, a whole tool set so he could change the bottom brackets. He could replace all the bearings in the in the linkage mechanisms. He had all the special tools, all the spare parts. So when he got the bike, it was unpainted, but it was the whole package, right? And then he was hooked up with Nolene to do the suspension as well. And But that's a short story. Anyway... He uh, after after riding that for a, a less than a year, uh, he switched to Giant, and Giant made copies of the bike. I think Lynn Caston from Redline built them, and uh, he RC. gave the bike. I got to stop you no, for, no, you gotta, for one second. Okay. okay, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. <laughs> Sorry. So he gave the bike a year later to his mechanic after he rode it cross country. He he said, I asked him if he still had the bike, and he goes, oh, yeah, it's my cross-country bike. And it was like the break point from, from when uh, dual suspension bikes and, and cross-country bikes went to longer. It was like, oh, you mean you can actually ride those things? And he goes, yeah. And then he gave it to his mechanic later on. Yeah. RC, my first full suspension mountain bike was a giant ATX 970 modeled after... The bike that you designed for Tomac. Yeah, it's pretty funny, isn't it? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. I built uh, cross-country racing bikes for uh, a guy named Kenny, who was a duathlon uh, world and, and national champion. And they were beautifully done, aerodynamic road bikes and stuff. And so for a while, I had like a whole bunch of championship bicycles that didn't have my name on it and were secret and nobody... <laughs> My greatest successes I can't be talked about, like my father, you know. So I guess we but anyway, back to this. The I at that particular point, uh, I got a call from uh Zapata Espinoza. And he had an op- he had an offer from uh Bicycling Magazine who absolutely sucked at making mountain bike magazines. They tried two or three times and they were so sweat you know, they were the kind of guys that would show up at a race with full-on road kits or they tie their their jackets around their waist you know it's like they just didn't fit the mountain bike um uh profile and they they were the mm-hmm. biggest strongest magazine in the business and so they thought that they they should have a magazine they should own the sport because they're so big but they were just you know ivy leaguers when it came in and you could smell them when they walked in the room so they decided to hire zap and he got a, a uh, an offer he couldn't refuse. They basically said, you tell us what you want and we'll say yes. They wanted him that bad because he was officially the best guy when it came to, he was the Mike Levy of the time, really. You know, he knew everything about the sport. <laughs> Hopefully he was a lot better than that, <laughs> RC. <laughs> but he was, he, and he was, he was under the wing of Jody Weisel. And Jody really is such a powerful personality and he's such a good teacher that he, it's kind of the deal where you have to get out from under your teacher to find out what's you and what's him, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was that moment for him. Yeah. Jody, you've mentioned Jody before. Jody Weisel ran motocross action. Is that correct, RC? And he became your boss when you went to mountain bike action? He was, he was not just my boss. He, he was my mentor. He, he was yeah. like an amazingly brilliant man, like my father in many ways. Just he knew what he was talking about. He spoke absolutely truthfully and straight. He was a, a a very difficult and a very amazing man to work for. And yes, we we mm-hmm. we both lived uh, seventy miles away from work, 
So I'd go and drive my car over to his house at some zero dark 30. And then he'd talk about how to make magazines on the way back and forth to his house. And we we'd yeah. carpool. And that's how I learned how to do it. RC, those sound like some pretty amazing days at Mantis. There's some crazy interesting bikes. That Tomac story is ridiculous. But how did you end up going from Mantis, your baby, to being an editor at Mount Bike Action? I realized that I wasn't a great business guy. <laughs> so, and in order to take Mantis to the next step and be competitive with, with the likes of Specialized, I believe that they would be they would be taking the, the manufacturing to the next level and use their their uh, their scale of manufacturing to do things on a much cheaper way. I, I didn't think we'd be able to compete with real, reliable mountain bikes with dedicated hardware made by the likes of Specialized and Trek that were performance-wise as good as us. And I thought that, that the small builder, the day of the small builder was coming to an end. And I thought, well, what's the next step? Either make my business large, become a businessman, step away from the designs, hire engineers, and try to make it as a as a the president of a of a of a small manufacturing facility. And I didn't have the faith that I'd be able to pull that off. So I was thinking about it, but at the same time, I was at the top of my game. I was making really good money, design contracts, I was designing for Nishiki. I had Everything was going my way. I had royalty contracts. And I got a call from Mountain Bike Action. And it was Jody Weisel. And he said, could you find me three or four people that could qualify as an editor for Mountain Bike Action? Because Zap is leaving. And then <laughs> you went from making... You went from making your custom frames to being editor at Mountain Bike Action. Jody Weisel, who ran Motocross Action, and you've mentioned him before as well. He turned into a lot more than a boss, didn't he? He turned into a mentor and and all that. Yeah, Jody Weisel was the turning point that made that career possible. I didn't know how to use. I didn't know how to type. I didn't know anything about magazines. I wasn't going yeah. to, I didn't put myself on the list, but I was sitting next mm -hmm. to my wife and she said, you know, Richard, you've been considering your next step for a long time. We've been talking about it. Why don't you put yourself on that list? And I thought, wow, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> so I, I, I called up Jody and I gave him a list of the three men I thought would be the best for the job and I put my name on it and the next day I was at High Tart Publications at an interview jeez okay RC we've been at this for a while why don't we save mountain bike action the wrecking crew testing all those crazy bikes moving on to pink bike we're gonna save all that stuff for part two of our discussion RC this has been absolutely amazing and I cannot wait Everybody that's listening, if you've got some questions for RC, make sure you post them down in the comment section below, and we'll get RC in there to answer some questions. And stay tuned for story time with RC part two next week. <laughs>